Today on Blue 58, Josh Jackson has reached the end of the road. What do the Packers get in return for their former second-round pick? We will talk about that in addition to catching up on what happened in the Packers' first preseason game. Blue 58! Hello and welcome to another episode of Blue 58, the one and only podcast of thepowersweep.com. I'm your host, John Meerdink. Very happy to be with you here for another episode. It is 9.06 p.m. on cut-down day as I come to you. Well, as I record this podcast, whenever it gets to you, it gets to you. Uh, But we have learned this afternoon that Josh Jackson is no longer a member of the Green Bay Packers, among other things. The Packers had their first roster cut down today, going from 90 to 85, and then briefly back up to 86 again. And there's reportedly another cut in the works here. We'll get to all that in a second. The headline story for cut down day, though, is that 2018 second round pick Josh Jackson has been traded, shipped off to the New York Giants for... 2018 third round pick Isaac Yadam. What happened here? Well, the Josh Jackson side of this is pretty easy to understand. He's been a poor fit in Green Bay since he was drafted. He never really made the conversion from basically exclusive outside zone cornerback into a cornerback that could do anything else in Green Bay. And now he's going to get a chance to try to do something else with another team. Yadam is kindly kind of the same sort of player. How he is used or, or why he is on his now third team since 2018 is is really immaterial. The nuts and bolts are this. Six feet tall, maybe 6'1", 190 pounds out of Boston College. I would say okay athlete looking at him. 6'1", 3 relative athletic score. Doesn't stand out anywhere. The, really, the only place he doesn't look good is in, in the bench press. Eight reps at 225. But he's a cornerback, so it doesn't really matter all that much anyway. A 2018 third-round pick in Denver, as I said, who's traded to the Giants about this time last year. It hasn't been special through three years, obviously. Otherwise, he wouldn't be moving to his third team already. Uh, But he has been relatively healthy and reliable. He's at least good enough to get on the field in Denver and in New York. He's played 45 of 48 possible games in his career. One interception, 12 passes defensed. Not that exciting. Grades-wise, according to Pro Football Focus, he's basically the same as Josh Jackson within a point on just about every front that they measure. Overall grade, 2020, he was a 56.8 compared to a 52 for Josh Jackson. He's slightly better against the run. He's a slightly better tackler. He is ever so slightly better in coverage uh, than Jackson was. The, The important part here is through 13 games last year, uh, he was targeted, excuse me, through 16 games last year. He played 13 games as a rookie. Through 16 games last year, he was carv- targeted in coverage 54 times. He allowed 34 completions for 451 yards and six touchdowns. Those numbers look don't look great. They're not great. He is probably going to be, at best, the number four cornerback. You're looking for special teams depth here. He does have pretty good speed. Uh, four five two in the 40-yard dash, good but not great. Good but not great uh, agility scores. Overall, a depth trade. Just try something new here. Is it a good move? That's really not the right way of looking at it. The, the better way to look at this move is that there was no downside here. Josh Jackson was bad in the first preseason game, so no reason not to cut him. Instead, he turns into a lottery ticket. There is a chance, however low it might be, that Yadam is going to be better than Jackson. You don't know until you look. Get him in the building, see what happens. You know Josh Jackson isn't the answer. Maybe the new guy will be. 
elsewhere on cut down day. Only one cut actually happening today. The other two, plus a couple IR moves uh, happening over the, the last day or so as well. Zach Johnson released today. Uh, small school guy. You could see the writing on the wall here. He was going to have to be really special to offset one reality. The Packers have been la- drafting a lot of interior linemen over the past couple of years. Uh, they drafted three last year. They drafted three more guys that are going to play on the interior this year. It just starts to get awful crowded there for an undrafted free agent who is not a special athlete. Same kind of goes for Josh Dietzen, or John Dietzen, excuse me. Nice story coming out of Wisconsin, growing up in Wisconsin. Again, pretty crowded room for a guy who's not just a special, special athlete. It was going to take a big effort for him to make the roster. The numbers are just working against him no matter how good a camp he may have had to this point. Finally, Ryan Winslow gets the axe yesterday. Always the most likely scenario for him. This was probably how it was going to end. He would have was going to have to seriously outperform J.K. Scott to get to the roster. The incumbent just tends to have an advantage there, and they've seen enough. That is now two specialist battles over. Now the even more nominal battle between Mason Crosby and J.J. Molson, the only one remaining of the three specialists, and we all know how that's going to shake out. More moves, though, on uh, on cut down day. The cut down day. The Packers put Isaac Nada and DeAndre Tompkins on injured reserve. Starting with the tight end, Nada. Packers seem to like him, seem to be coming on strong down the stretch here in camp. Some bad injury luck. He was out the second half against Houston. Uh, There's a possibility the Packers may make a roster settlement here, but if they like him enough to uh, stick him on IR now, maybe they let him ride it out this season and just bring him back for like a reserve slash futures type deal next January or February or so. Uh, let him go through the off uh, offseason program again and uh, try again next year. Just some bad injury luck for him. Same kind of goes for DeAndre Tompkins. I had him as kind of a weird potential roster sleeper, another small Tavon Austin, Tyler Irvin type. Very speedy, but he had a pretty well-defined role ahead of him in the offense. He was going to be that jet motion slot guy, well, guess who ended up in Green Bay earlier this offseason? Well, I guess earlier this month or late last month, it's Randall Cobb. And uh, he all but ends any competition for spots on the roster uh, between himself and Amari Rogers. You just aren't going to keep another guy who's going to do that role beyond those two guys. You'll find somebody else, Aaron Jones, Kylan Hill, somebody else to do it rather than keeping a third receiver who really can only do just that. Finally, after the cutdown deadline passes, we're getting reports that the Packers re-signed Jake Dolagala. Just a, uh, hey man, good to see you. Welcome back. We know what's going on here. The Packers need another camp arm. They've got Aaron Rodgers. They've got Jordan Love. They've got Kurt Bankert. Love a little dinged up. They need a third quarterback just to, to run practice. They had a guy in for a workout. Not even going to bother bringing up his name in part because I don't know what it is. Uh, I saw it and then lost it, and then it doesn't really matter because they signed Jake Dolagala. Anyway, uh, they like the familiarity there, obviously. The twist to this is that they have to make a corresponding move, and the reported name attached to this move, according to Bill Huber of Sports Illustrated or Fan Nation or whatever they call that walking corpse that is Sports Illustrated now, 
Uh, Huber says it's Stanford Samuels getting the axe. Uh, he is going to be released to make room for Jake Dolagala, which is a real bummer considering how highly regarded Samuels was as a defensive back prospect last offseason. Got a bit of a rough shake in the, in the combine, got a little hurt before he had to run, and that hurt his chances at making a run at a roster spot or getting drafted, I, I suppose. But uh, he now is reportedly, at least on the outside, looking in in Green Bay. Uh, so the Packers can have another camp arm. That is probably due in part to the emergence of guys like Kavion Ento. Ento looking like a real player here, uh, you know, within reason. Certainly more of a player than Samuels. Uh, not quite as athletically limited as Samuels is, although you wonder a little bit about that with the testing numbers being skewed by some injury stuff around the combine last spring. But just again, losing out on a numbers game, and that's what happens a lot of the time here in training camp. You start looking at the numbers. You make those early cuts where you have numbers, and right now the Packers have a lot of numbers in their favor in the defensive backfield. They've got a lot of corners that are about the same level, and apparently they're a level above Stanford Samuels, and I think we'll probably see some similar stuff to that at safety here in the relatively near future, probably about next week at this time. Now that cut-down day is out of the way, let's circle back to preseason game number one. Overall, One real good thing happened in this game. The Packers came out of it relatively healthy. The only injuries that we have, well, Nada and Tompkins, and they are now on injured reserve. Ultimately, as far as the health of the overall roster, though, no harm, no foul there. We weren't going to be, you know, making or breaking the season based on what happened with those two anyway. So from that respect, really a completely healthy roster with those two exceptions. Other than that, I thought this game was pretty uninformative. The offensive line was not strong enough to really get a good read on what anybody was was really doing in the backfield. Made it hard to take a look at Jordan Love beyond some really just blindingly obvious stuff. It made it a real hard time or a real real tough task to get a look at what the running backs were doing, though we did see some good stuff, uh, at least from Kylan Hill, a little bit. Let's start with who looked good in this game. I've got a, a pretty decent list of names because while not maybe the most informative game ever. We did see a couple strong individual performances, starting with Oren Burks. The problem with Oren Burks has always been between the ears. Uh, He would admit that. The Packers coaches have said that. Less thinking, more doing has been the mantra for Oren Burks for a couple years now because the athletic testing numbers are there. He's got pretty good size for a linebacker. Not, you know, not super elite size, but it, it's pretty good. He's got good physical tools. The problem is you see you see him sit there and process and process and process, and it just it never comes together for him. That looked different on Saturday night. He was getting up and down the field, more up, but just getting straight into the backfield like he was fired out of a cannon, slicing through gaps, that penetrating Joe Barry, Brandon Staley, Vic Fangio, five-man front, getting through the interior of the line and doing damage in the backfield. It was pretty good. Devin Funches, kind of the same things. He was doing good things against guys that are not all that good. Uh, and that's what you would ask for, really, from a guy like him. He's an experienced player. He's a good athlete. He's a big body. You want to see him dominate guys that are not at his level of competition. Looking at Oren Burks and Devin Funches together, a colleague of mine at Acme Packing Company, you know him as Matub if you hang around Packers Twitter at all, calls guys like this quad A players, quadruple A players. They're like, Major League Baseball players who are way too good to be playing minor league baseball, but they're never going to be more than depth guys 
in the NFL or in, in Major League Baseball. And you kind of wonder if Warren Burks and Devin Funches at this stage of their career are, are just that kind of guy. We're going to need to see more from them to know for sure. But Saturday night, they were beaten up on a bunch of guys who aren't going to be playing on Sundays. It's just, just a fact. That's the way it is. But you are not responsible for raising your level of competition. You are responsible for dominating the competition that is in front of you. So don't think that this is a shot at Burks or Funches. That's just the question posed of them right now. Okay, you played really well against guys that are not all that elite. What can you do against other NFL caliber players? The competition is only going to get tougher. How well are they going to play? They played really well on Saturday night. I want to see more of it going forward. Speaking of uh, wanting to see more good things going forward, let's talk KB on Ento here for a second. He absolutely looks like he belongs on an NFL football field. The transition time is over. He is fully an NFL defensive back now. I love his size. I love his length. It doesn't look like he has any kind of speed issues out there, and obviously we saw he's got some some good ball skills as well. He looked like he belonged out there too. I liked what I saw from Vernon Scott too. He came downhill a couple times hard and filled. That is a big, like bold letters, job requirement for safeties in this scheme. Safety's got to fill in a hurry because the Packers and whoever runs this kind of scheme is going to be playing light fronts. Uh, four-man defensive lines, maybe three three down linemen, two down linemen, two edges, and a an inside backer. It's going to be light up front. There's going to be a lot of defensive backs on the field. And if you still want to defend the run, you're going to have to come downhill in a hurry and get your body into the box. Scott did that a couple times. Henry Black once or twice too, but Scott was the main guy. Came downhill hard and Phil did it against the, the pass too. That is good to see. Kylan Hill. Couldn't have been more pleased. He looked exactly like what we've been saying since April, uh, providing first and foremost extra juice in the passing game, great broken field running on the screenplay touchdown. We'll see about the run game. Want to see him behind an actual NFL offensive line uh, before we draw two sweeping conclusions there. But really, not a lot to complain about there. Really solid effort from Kylan Hill Saturday night. And as a bonus, returning kicks that can only help him as he tries to make the roster. Finally, Jordan Love, the one everybody wanted to see. My big takeaway from Love is that he didn't look in over his head, didn't look nervous, didn't look like he didn't know what was going on out there. He looked like he had been playing in this offense for a while now, which is kind of the case. It's been basically two years now that he's he's been sitting in this offense, which I think is about all that you ask from somebody in his first go-round playing in an NFL game at something approximating NFL speed. The questions about Love are still there. Watching his feet Saturday night didn't look good. Uh, He throws, I mean, they talk about arm talent and throwing from different platforms and things like that. That is all well and good. He can do that. Sometimes he ends up having to throw from bad platforms because he doesn't get his feet set when he throws. He tends to take very large steps when he throws the football, which is not conducive to accuracy. The more levers that you involve in your throwing process, the bigger steps you take, the more movement you have in your arm, the more variables you have, the more inconsistent your delivery is. And I think we saw some of that on Saturday night. That is a problem. Uh, He needs to get those mechanics a little bit more sound. Matt LaFleur said uh, over the weekend as well that 
he needs to stop aiming the football too and just let it rip. And I think that is 100% accurate. He needs to just stand in there and let it fly sometimes. You can see the wheels turning as he gets ready to throw. The arm talent is there. He's just got to let it take over sometimes. That guy is open, let it go. Uh, He tries to put it exactly on a spot. Your arm can make that throw. This is me talking directly to him. His arm can make that throw. He doesn't need his body to tell him or to tell exactly his body what to do. Just do it. Let those instincts take over. Show off that arm talent and just let the arm do the work. Who didn't look so good? Three names. Uh, One kind of a small one. One guy who's already out of town. One guy who I had high hopes for. Just a small thing for for Malik Taylor, first and foremost. He had a couple double catches. uh, Looked a little less confident for a guy uh, making catches who needs to show that he's more than just a gunner. We know that he can do the special team stuff. We know he can cover punts. We we know he can return kickoffs if he's got to. The question with uh, Malik Taylor is, can he be more than that? Saturday, it didn't really look like he could be, though he did ultimately make a couple of those catches too. Josh Jackson struggled. He's already gone. We don't have to say anything about him. Yash Nyman, biggest disappointment of the night for me. Um, I've been in, in Yash's corner for a while now. I think he has immense physical gifts. I don't think that's ever been in question. But somehow at 314 pounds, he still looks like he's playing light. He gets pushed around. He doesn't look assertive, and I think we saw some of that on Saturday night. Oddly enough, Pro Football Focus had it, had him graded out as one of their best players Saturday night. I think you can make a case for that. I think he could still be one of their top-graded players, while the concerns about him could still be exactly the same. And those concerns, even if he does play well or did play well in this game, could be enough to get him cut. Sure, he executes well. That's ultimately what that grade is about, executing well. Sure, he executes well against poor competition, but he still got shoved around a little bit. What happens if he has to do that against a top-level pass rusher or, you know, an Akeem Hicks or something like that playing in, in Chicago on a cold November Sunday? What happens then? I mean, is he still going to execute at that level? Again, you cannot adjust for your level of competition. You've got to go out and dominate at whatever level you're playing against. And he did end up graded positively, but those concerns are still there. You want him to be more assertive. You want him to um, to really dominate the competition. Just a couple other assorted observations. Shamar John Charles, getting to see him for the first time was fun. The fifth-round pick this spring. He is tiny, listed at 5'10 and 3'8". Look, I'm listed at 6'5". If he is listed at 5'10 and 3'8", I am six foot eight. Okay, uh, he is—he's not as big as his listed height, uh, but he looks smooth. He looks feisty. He looks like the little brother version of Jair Alexander. Maybe hasn't quite grown into all of his physical gifts yet, but he looks like he can play. Jack Heflin, the big defensive lineman, doesn't appear to be going away anytime soon. He had a nice play on a screen play. Was big. Was active. That's what the Packers need from their depth lineman. Great thing to see. Uh, They can always use more depth up front. Finally, Patrick Taylor, good to see him returning kicks. That can only help his cause. Pretty excited. Uh, it It was good to see the Packers out on the field, even if it wasn't that informative of a game. We get to see more Packers football on Saturday night, and it's Packers football from here on out. 
each and every week, uh, except for a bye week uh, until hopefully February. So uh, I'm, I'm ready to be back in the saddle here. Before we dive into Blood, Sweat, and Chalk, I want to take a second and pause and give a, a couple shout-outs to our Patreon supporters. We've got three guys I want to shout-out today. Christer Roos, Danish Cheesehead, and Daniel Thiesing, or Thiesing. I'm not quite sure how you pronounce your last name there, but I'm appreciative of your Patreon support nonetheless. Each of these guys has an opportunity to uh, join us in our Discord server as well as get some uh, bonus Patreon content. If you'd like to be in the same boat as them, head to patreon.com slash thepowersweep and pick any support level that's going to get you access to that Discord server, basically a private chat uh, for Packers fans from all over the world, as you might guess from that uh, that screen name there, Danish Cheesehead, one of two Danes that show up regularly in the chat as well as a, a couple people from from all over the world. It's a, it's a lot of fun, and uh, it's fun to you know hear people chime in or see people chime in at different time zones and things like that from all over the world, all enjoying the Packers together. So if you like what we're doing here, if you want to connect with more Packers fans from around the world, head to patreon.com slash thepowersweep. Support us there. Help us keep doing great stuff here, and uh, we'll get you in on the action from there. Sound good? Good. Blood, Sweat, and Chalk, Chapter 17. Getting right down to the end here where we've got about five chapters to go, so two, three more weeks. Uh, overall impressions of this chapter, nothing super specific, but it's nice to have a chapter about defense. Uh, we've talked a lot of offense here, uh, and I suppose it makes sense to have offense go first since defense is uh, a reactive side of the game. But it is nice to start talking about that side of the field. The Tampa 2 has been just about talked to death. So I don't think we need to talk about the individual schemes and things like that. I think we all basically understand the gist here. 4-3 scheme, traditionally. Four down linemen, three linebackers behind them, four defensive backs behind them. Your linebackers are going to be dropping back in zone. Your uh, safeties, your two deep safeties, are going to go deep zones, taking half the field each. Uh, your safeties or your corners, excuse me, maybe playing man, maybe doing zone, depending on, on what they want to do, some short zones in the flat. Uh, but that's basically it for the cover two. And from there, again, it comes down to players. We'll talk about players in a second. Uh, but the first nugget that jumped out here uh, was the the game, the date where everything changed. Uh, Layden, Tim Layden cites January 23rd, 2000 as the date when everything changed. There was a lot that changed that day. Uh, th- well, was things that have changed since then, I suppose we should say. Yes, the cover two made things difficult for the greatest show on turf, nearly preventing them from realizing their Super Bowl destiny that year. Uh, But that day, the St. Louis Rams were playing the Tampa Bay Buccaneers in the Trans World Dome. Of course, the St. Louis Rams are now the Los Angeles Rams. Trans World Airlines was bought by American American Airlines and basically sold for parts, converted to inventory almost immediately. And something else notable happened in that game. This was what was known as the Burt Emanuel game. Sure, the cover two was a big factor in that game, but Tampa Bay Buccaneers fans might say there was another factor in that game as well, a failed replay review. The description of the infamous Burt Emanuel play from Wikipedia, quote, the Buccaneers would mount a drive on their final possession. However, a replay overturned what appeared to be a second down reception by Buccaneers wide receiver Burt Emanuel, which would have set up a short yardage third down. Emmanuel dove for a catch and clasped the ball between two hands. Then upon falling, the ball touched the turf while in Emmanuel's hands. The ruling on the field was a completed catch, but was overturned on review because the ball had touched the ground before Emmanuel 
was deemed in possession of it. Following this, the Buccaneers threw incomplete passes on third and fourth down, and the Rams were able to kneel out the clock. My heart bleeds a little bit because of that last sentence. Yes, you did not convert on second down, but you still had third down and fourth down. But still, they've got a point. Uh, This uh, now age-old debate on what exactly is a catch also started back on January 23rd, 2000, in addition to stuff about the uh, the cover two. Brian Urlacher in this book, in this chapter, was quoted as saying, it works, man, in reference to the cover two. And it's true, it does work. Uh, but what came up again and again in this chapter is that this defense sure works a lot better when you've got Hall of Fame players like, say, Brian Urlacher running it, or rewind to the Steel Curtain defense in the 70s and 80s, everybody involved with that, But the real popularity of the cover two, the Tampa two, started with Tampa. Well, who do you have there? Warren Sapp, Derek Brooks, John Lynch, Hall of Famers at every level. Throw Rondé Barber in there too. He'll probably end up in the Hall of Fame someday. That's four of your 11 defenders in the Hall of Fame. Makes it a heck of a lot easier to run a scheme when you've got that level of talent. But they fit the scheme to the talent, and it worked out really well really like this quote from Rich Gannon. Uh, There are not a lot of big plays out there against this defense. You have to be patient and take four, five, six-yard plays and work your way up the field. That's something coordinators and quarterbacks don't always enjoy doing. It's true. It's also really hard to do, and that's kind of the point of the Tampa 2 here as well. You're not just trying to eliminate the big plays. You're You're making it so the defense or the offense has to go a long, long way, a little bit at a time, to get down the field. And it's hard to consistently produce five, six yards at a clip. Uh, think about an 80-yard drive. Well, if you're getting six yards to play, six yards of play, it's still going to take you 14 plays to get into the end zone. That's a long time uh, to go without messing up enough that it puts you really behind the, the sticks, forces you to punt, forces you to kick a field goal, or you make an even worse mistake and end up turving, turning the ball over against a Hall of Fame caliber defense like the Tampa 2, just for instance, that is a pretty difficult thing to do. Also occurred to me during this uh, this chapter, or or got me wondering, how much of this was all put in play by Tony Dungy switching to defense in the NFL? He played quarterback in Minnesota, was not drafted or asked to play quarterback in the NFL. He switched to defensive back for the Steelers, won a Super Bowl with them as a player, went away for a little bit, came back as a coach, learned a lot, implemented all he learned, and became a Super Bowl-winning head coach as well. How much of that ends up working out much differently if, say, some team drafts Tony Dungy in the 70s and says, yep, we think you can play quarterback in the NFL. We want you to give that a shot. And uh, say he has, you know, a five- to eight-year middling career as a quarterback, or, you know, maybe he goes on to a long career. Maybe he's really successful. Does he come back and coach? Maybe not. Maybe he goes on to have that, like I said, middling career as a quarterback. Does he end up as an offensive coordinator? Where? What is he doing? It's an interesting question to ask, and we're never really going to have the answer to it, but uh, you have to wonder how these things could work out slightly differently. Thinking, Speaking of things working out slightly differently, who was on the field with that Bucks staff, Buccaneer staff in 2001? Not for that fateful game in 2000. Not after the... Uh, the Tampa two really got rolling in the late nineties, but who's there with the Buccaneers staff in the year 2001 learning under Monty Kiffin. 
pretty close to the start of the Tampa 2. That would be Green Bay Packers defensive coordinator Joe Barry learning at the foot of one of the Tampa 2 masters, Monte Kiffin, uh, and soaking up all he can. Maybe uh, maybe we'll see a little bit of that kind of kind of stuff on the field for the Packers this year. So I've got for you on this episode. I do appreciate you listening in. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd appreciate it even more if you shared it with somebody else. It's going to continue to get more people involved in this conversation around the Packers and ultimately is going to help all of us, me included, become smarter Packers fans. And as I always say, smarter Packers fans are better Packers fans, and better Packers fans are what we all want to be. I'm your host, John Meerdink. We'll see you next time on Blue 58.